Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken to the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The power, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. We're going to continue with a centering breath prayer, which reminds us that God is closer to you than the air you breathe. I invite you on your inhalation to pray, gracious God, and as you exhale, lead us by your spirit. Gracious God, lead us by your spirit.
Gracious God, in the stillness of this place, perhaps the most still and quiet we've been all week, because this world rushes at us with a force and a volume that can become frantic or confusing, disorienting, exhausting. We come to this very moment, people of hope and optimism, people of success and strength and joy, people of fear and failure and anger and confusion, depression and addiction. We come to you a beautiful mess. And right now, you see us in all our complexity, in all our contradictions, and your response is to not run from us or say, yuck, but rather to run toward us, to give yourself to us in the sacrificial love of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed, that our world would be renewed, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Florence and I made a goal this New Year's to walk every block of downtown San Diego. And we've been tracking it with Strava, so especially with the high surf and the, the rains that are, don't make open ocean swimming all that advantageous. I've been staying out of the water since the new year, but walking a lot with Florence. And we'll just, you know, park at the Star of India and walk Ash Street over to the 163 and then drop down and walk A Street back. That's one day. Next day, walk B Street, C Street. And before you know it, we're moving through a lot of the city. And one of the neat things about this is I've lived in the city for a long time. I was born and raised here. I was actually a pedicab driver through the gas lamp in college. That was one of the most fun college jobs that I had. So I feel like I know the city pretty well. But when you walk it block by block and step by step, you're just moving more slowly through the city. You're noticing things. You're noticing people. You're noticing stores. You're noticing plaques on the wall. Florence and I saw a plaque on the wall of this one building that really wouldn't have stood out to me in the gas lamp. And it said this was actually San Diego's first skyscraper. It's only 11 stories tall, but 100 years ago, that was a big deal. And so it talks about the marble in the, in the lobby. And I just, hey, Florence, let's go to the lobby. So I start looking around. I ask the lady who's working there, can you tell me about the marble? Oh, well, it's from Italy. And the wood is from Australia. Oh, cool. Well, can you tell me anything else about this place? She goes, you two seem like all right people. Do you want to just go up to the roof deck and look around? I'm like, yeah, I want to go to the roof deck and look around. So she walks us over to the elevator and puts her key in. She says, just come down when you're done. So Florence Hart and I are now on the roof. This is on like Thursday. And we're seeing the city from a new perspective because we've never been on the top of San Diego's first skyscraper. The point is, I thought I knew the city really well. But by slowing down and walking and listening and following the invitations, I get to see the city from a new perspective with a new depth, and there begins to be this new experience of it. it leads to new wisdom. It leads to new relationship. I love the city more now for having walked it more. 
And I think in the same way, when we read passages like what we just read, Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus inviting people to repent and receive the kingdom of heaven. If you've been around church for a while, you've heard these things before. But even if you're not a regular churchgoer, you've heard about Jesus teaching, Jesus healing. You've probably heard the word repentance in a negative concept. And I want to invite you, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, to slow down and walk through this invitation that Jesus gives. Because underneath it all, is a question, a question that we all ask, whether consciously or subconsciously, what is God like? What is God like? I have plenty of conversations with friends who would say, I don't believe in God. And I'll say, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. I don't believe in a God that just rewards people if they're holy and they don't sin and they go to church all the time. I don't believe in that God either, right? But we do have a vision of who God is. We do ask the question, who is God? God. And Christianity says, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. The writer of Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe. So first, let's look at the kingdom of heaven. It's often interchanged throughout the Gospels with the kingdom of God, but since Matthew is probably writing to a largely Jewish audience who wouldn't say the word Yahweh, he interchanges the kingdom of heaven. But they're equally used. So now let's talk about heaven. This cannot mean heaven is merely, simply, only a place where God's faithful people go after they die. It can't mean only that, otherwise how could it be coming near to us now? So what does it mean? The kingdom of heaven is a way of talking about what the world will be like when the rightful king is truly reigning. A king who has all power and authority, but who doesn't use that power and authority to crush or to manipulate or to coerce or to dominate, but uses all that power and authority to renew and restore and breathe life. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is what it looks like when Jesus is truly reigning as the king. This is what he teaches us to pray as we did in our opening prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not once I die, get me out of here into a better place called heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says that kingdom is breaking through now. It's not on layaway. It's not at a future date. It is breaking through like light breaks into darkness and illuminating everything. It's coming. What if God is closer than you think? What if God is inviting you into something more deep and more profound than you could possibly imagine? What if there's an invitation so loving and so powerful it could reshape and repurpose your entire life. And what if you're missing it? The question is, are you hearing it? And how do you respond? In this passage, we see three calls. We see this call to transformation, a call to relationship, and a call to healing. First, the call to transformation. Now, this is found in that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The context is, this is the beginning of Jesus' 
life-transforming, community-renewing ministry and mission. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. So how should you respond? He says, repent. But repent is a word that is often mistranslated. Often translated as, to, to repent would be to feel really bad about yourself for doing really bad things. Someone says, no thanks. I don't want you telling me that I've done bad things. I don't want you shaming me and telling me that I should feel bad about myself. Let me tell you, I hear you and I've seen churches, religion, weaponize it. I've seen non-churches weaponize it as well. So I don't think Christians have the copyright on that shame get bit. But it's not what it means. The word in Greek is metanoia, which simply means, meta means to change, noia means how you think. Change the way you think which will lead to change the way you act, which will lead to the changing of the direction of your life, right? Be careful of your thoughts because they become your words. Be careful of your words because they become your actions. Be careful of your actions because they become your habits. Be careful of your habits because they become who you are. He says, let's catch it all the way back here. The kingdom of heaven has come near, so instead of orienting your entire life around the rules of this world, what if you start orienting your entire life around the rightful reign of that king? Change your mind. Change the way you think. It will change your direction. And note, Jesus comes to you wherever you are to turn around your story. Why do I say that? Because it says in verse 15 that Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, the Jewish Messiah, goes to Galilee, the land of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. See, in the Jewish Hebrew mind, there were two ethnicities, Jews and everybody else. Gentile is the Greek word ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity. There are the true Hebrews, and there's everybody else. And Jesus went to the land of the Gentiles, not to the land of the pure, insider, religiously observant Jews. He didn't go to church to get a bunch of followers. He went to the countryside, to the city, to the urban center. He went to Galilee. He went to the place where you wouldn't expect him. We pondered this mystery throughout the narratives of Jesus' infancy where you have these poor shepherds coming from the countryside and these wealthy pagan astrologers coming from the east and everybody's surrounding Jesus. The gospel is full of surprises. It's a strange place for a Messiah to set up shop. But Jesus shows up in strange places. I remember in my story when I was considering following Jesus. I mean, I, I say I grew up culturally Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through undergrad. Um, I, you know, took the classes. I went to Mass at Sacred Heart Ocean Beach every Sunday. But that had very little bearing on the rest of my life. That was kind of the thing I did because it's the thing my family did. And I remember one time when I was 17, after working at Sioux Plantation, moment of silence, I, I was the youngest crew trainer at the first Sioux Plantation in history. It was in Point Loma. It was amazing. Heydays. So we finished, and we closed up, and we bought a bunch of beer. I was 17. I, I know you're tracking the story. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just telling you what happened. <laughs> and we went to Sunset Cliffs. We're there at like 2 in the morning. Before you know it, it's 4 in the morning, and this minivan shows up of a bunch of guys from southeast San Diego, from the hood. And I've always been a lover, not a fighter. So they show up. I say, hey, there's plenty of beer. There's a cooler right here. Why don't you hang out with us? And we're sitting there for another hour. The sun starts to come up. And one, so we're there for nefarious purposes. You know, we're not causing trouble. We're not harming anyone but ourselves. That's what we told ourselves. Um, anyway, sun comes up. I say, oh, I got to go. 
My new friend from southeast San Diego says, where do you got to go? It's 5.30 in the morning. I said, well, I got to go to mass in five hours. I should probably get some sleep. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. He goes, you cannot be doing all of this and be going to church and calling yourself a Christian. I was like, what? He said, no, 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 let me say it again. You can't be doing all this and then going to church and calling yourself a Christian. I was like, what about you? He goes, I'm not a Christian. I don't act like a Christian. But if you're going to say you're one, you probably should act like one. Now, here's my point. This is not a moralistic, you know, you shouldn't have a nice beverage watching the sunrise or sunset, whatever. The point is, Jesus shows up in the strangest of places. To the point where that short conversation at sunrise 25 years ago is still part of my story today of Jesus saying, go ahead and go wherever you want. Go ahead and do whatever you want. I will still be there. I'm looking for you. The question is, are you aware when Jesus shows up? looking for you, and how do you respond? Jesus shows up in the strangest of places. So some of you right now can't believe you're actually in a church service, or maybe later you're watching this video feed on YouTube or Facebook, and you're like, what am I even doing listening to this stuff? You've had a bad experience with church before. Maybe you've written the idea of God or Jesus off for one reason or another. And yet, here you are, listening searching. Might God be breaking through right now in this moment? Part of what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is near, which means it goes everywhere. It also means it goes to everyone, which for a Christian is the great challenge. I think it's one of the great challenges of our day. One of the gifts the church can give to the watching world is what it looks like to love people with whom you disagree and have vital, essential differences. Because the world, you know, I don't have to tell you the order of operations for our world. If you disagree with them, first step is to isolate them. Second step, distance. Third step, throw stones at them one way or the other with your words, with your tweets, with your actual physical violence. And Jesus says... The kingdom of heaven is moving to everyone. It doesn't mean this is universalism or relativism or everything is all the same. It doesn't mean that. It means that the people with whom you disagree or dislike should be the first people that you're praying for in the morning. That's a challenge. That should offend you because it offends our sensibilities. And yet that'll transform your life. That'll transform this world. Secondly, as this calling the uh, transformation comes... Jesus comes to you in your confusion, in your pain, in your anxiety. See, it says he goes to Galilee, but Galilee, for the original audience, was a loaded term. Verse 15 of the Gospel of Matthew here describes it from the prophet Isaiah. It says, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region in shadow of death, the light has dawned. This is actually, see if you can spot the difference. So this is Matthew quoting Isaiah the prophet from nine centuries earlier. Here's the actual prophecy from Isaiah. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. If you're not looking at it, it would be hard to spot, so I'll point it out for you. When Isaiah describes the destitute situation of God's people, by the way, they were destitute because they had just been invaded and massacred by the Assyrians in the ninth century. And so these people have been crushed violently and physically and dispersed and put into bondage. That's the type of darkness that we're talking about. And Isaiah says, for those who have walked in darkness will see a great light. But when Matthew quotes it, he says, those who are sitting in darkness will see a great light. And here's the point. Sometimes life for you and me feels so heavy, it feels like walking in darkness. Sometimes life feels so heavy, it feels paralyzing, and you're stuck, and you're not even walking. You're sitting in darkness. The confusion is so thick, the anger is so heavy, the fear is so palpable, and it feels like you just can't move forward. And Jesus And and Jesus is fulfilling in Matthew, even when you're in that sort of darkness, the light is coming toward you. And it's in that place that Jesus' light can penetrate and dawn in you and turn around your story. To make the places of greatest pain in your life place where God does God's best work. Now, it's not that they will forget the story of their pain. It's not that you will not bear scars in this life as you walk through pain. Not at all. But it's that you will become a wounded healer. You will become a person whose scars are not continuously reopening on yourself and upon others but someone who as God is healing you and meeting you in the darkness, you actually don't become more bitter, more cynical, more guarded, more isolated. Instead, you actually become more sweet, more resilient, more adaptable, more hopeful. A Christian is called to embrace the reality that Jesus begins his ministry to heal all things in the darkest parts of our story. Now, we can see this on the micro level, on the personal level, the darkness that you experience, in the pain of a loss, when you say, why did that happen? Or in confusion, when you say, why am I here? Where is this going? In the pain of failure, when you say, why did I do that? Or just in exhaustion, when you ask, how can I go on? And it's into that darkness that the light comes and shines. But we also see it on the macro level, or the communal level, or the global level, or maybe we'd even say on the cosmic level, when we see Jesus moving toward the darkness of the human condition of death and violence and retaliation. Jesus comes to you and me, to us, when it feels like we are sitting in darkness. And he's saying, my light is nothing less than the life and presence of God to move toward you, to care for you, and to heal all things. I will not only rewrite and heal your story, but then give you a new direction altogether.
Can you hear that? The invitation to transformation. Now, let me just note, this is not a call to a self-help program to get your stuff together. You know, someone says, my favorite Bible verse is God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. In fact, the overwhelming consensus of the Bible is God helps people who can't help themselves and can admit it. So on one hand, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near, repent to receive it, it's almost like in um, Jerry Maguire, you, you had me at, yeah. It's like you had me at kingdom. Because right now, the Jewish people are experiencing the oppression of another kingdom, the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire, the Pax Romana. It's crushing them. And he says, there's a new kingdom on its way. You could be a part of it. And first of all, one of the people groups, the zealots, who would have been kind of the religious guerrilla warfare people who would come in to try to undertake or overtake the Roman soldiers, they would say, that means it's a call to arms and it's time to fight. The Pharisees, who were kind of the purveyors at the temple and in charge of the religious processes, would say that means it's a call to obey the Torah, obey the law, get more religious, get more church. The Essenes, who were kind of an ethical purity movement, who withdrew from society, would say that actually means at this point it's time for us to get better about our personal morality, to just be better people. And Jesus says, don't you realize those are all self-salvation strategies? This is not an invitation for you to save yourself. This is an invitation for you to see that the kingdom of heaven is drawing near and the king is standing in front of you and your hard work is to actually receive it. To trust it. To believe it. To welcome it. To participate in it. And when you do this, it changes your direction. Which leads us to the call to relationship. That was the longest point, so don't worry. These are not all going to be long points like this. The call to relationship in verse 18 through 22, he says, follow me. Now, one interesting point about this is that Jesus, as this Jewish rabbi at the beginning of his teaching, preaching, healing ministry, is going around and inviting his disciples to come and follow him, which was absolutely not the way that a rabbi would enroll students. Everyone back then knew that the call to a rabbi was so high that it was almost, um, it was, I don't want to say, it was disrespectful for a rabbi to say, you should follow me, you should follow me, you should follow me. Instead, the rabbi would go, and if their teaching and preaching was good enough, people would start following them. In other words, the disciple chooses the rabbi. But here's Jesus I don't think he had a problem with his teaching or preaching because people cannot get enough of him. That wasn't, he wasn't having a popularity problem, so he needed some followers. There's something in his character that goes out and finds people. If Jesus really is what God is like, do you know what that says about God? It is in God's character to come find you. This is not about you meeting God halfway. God has already come all the way to you. It's simply opening, opening the door. And Jesus says, come follow me. I could do a whole sermon on how he found them in their day job on Monday, right? He, he didn't find them in the temple. He didn't find them on the mountaintop. He didn't find them on the retreat. These are places you might expect to have a spiritual experience. He found them in the office. While they were doing TPS reports and catching up on emails, right? They, he found them while they were doing the fishermen stuff that they had to do. 
And he breaks through and asks them and invites them to follow me. And that invitation to follow me is not merely to believe me. It's not to follow, follow my commands, follow my teaching. We will do that, but not to get to him. We do that because he's already gotten to us. Obedience is a response to God's love in our lives, not a way to earn it. Obedience is a response to God's love in our lives, not a way to earn it. If you try to obey Jesus in order to earn his love, you will be done by sunset. Because you'll either be exhausted and give up, or resentful and you'll run. But if you can start the day saying, I am so loved, how do I possibly live into this more, enjoy this more? Set my compass according to true north. Of God's love in my life, it'll reorient everything. And it's ongoing and dynamic. Follow me is a dynamic term. It is not a one time I chose to follow Jesus on this date. It can include that, but then it's I chose to follow Jesus every day after that. Well, if we're really being honest, there were some days I chose not to, and he still came after me. See, if, here's how you can tell if you're a Christian, one way. If I say, are you a Christian? You say, yes. I say, how do you know? Well, because I go to church every Sunday, and I lead three ministries, and I read my Bible all the time, and I give my money to the poor, and that's how I know I'm a Christian. I'm, I will say, I'm not telling you you're not a Christian. I will just say, I don't think that's the best diagnostic. Here's something that's more sure and secure. If I can say, do you know you're a Christian? You could say, yes. Well, how do, you, how do I know? Candidly, I'm surprised that I'm a Christian. It's a shock. But he broke through in my life and continues to pursue me every day. And sometimes I get it right and sometimes I don't. But he'll never leave me or forsake me. And I'm a Christian not because I've figured out how to hold on to Jesus, but because I've come to believe that he'll never let me go. And I'm safe and secure with him forever. That's the invitation of grace. That's the invitation of follow me. And it's costly. The pattern that you see of the fishermen leaving their nets, there's three words you see repeated. Immediately, they left their stuff or their father and followed. Immediately, they left, fill in the blank, and followed. There's an urgency to it. There's a cost to it. There's an action to it. Right now, Christian friends, what are you immediately leaving behind to follow him? And they're leaving behind their professions and their family. I mean, these are the two sacred cows of kinship culture, your family and your profession. Why is Smith such a common last name? Because it was important if you were a blacksmith, right? Your family is, if, if they want to know who you are, they don't start with where you're from. They start with who's your family. In many cultures to this day, they don't lead with their personal name and then end with their family name. They start with the family name and then go to the personal name. And they're leaving behind their professional identity and their family. Now, for us, that might be a big question around how you relate to your finances or how you relate to the image that you put out into this world or the influence that you have in this world, or the comfort that you have in your life, or the control that you have over circumstances in your life. And Jesus challenges us to something greater. He actually warns us, it's possible to gain the world and lose your soul. 
In, in other words, if you put the, your career in the center of your life, it will run you into the ground. Your career will never give its life for you, but it will demand that you give your life for it, if you let it. If you put your image, how you present to this world, as the most important thing, you will end up losing yourself, ironically. If you make your sexuality the center of your life, the core of your life, the most important part of your life, it will end up dehumanizing you. So following Jesus is really the death of all idolatries. Now look, sometimes the invitation to follow me, as Jesus says, means changing your career or changing where you live or changing your relationships. But oftentimes it means recalibrating, reassessing, rethinking, metanoia, repenting, how you relate in your career, in your relationships, in your current home or neighborhood or city. We see these two examples early on in the Gospels where John the Baptist has a Roman soldier come to him and a tax collector come to him. And they say, what do we need to do to realign with the kingdom of God? And if there's anything that you think would be the right answer, if you're a Jewish faithful person in Israel being crushed by the Roman Empire and a Roman soldier comes and says, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? You would think the first step would be, well, stop being a Roman soldier, right? And he doesn't say that. He just, John the Baptist actually says, go back and do your job, but do it as one who's loyal to Christ over anything or anyone else. Same thing for the tax collector. I mean, if anybody, tax collectors were the Jewish people who worked for the Roman government to excise taxes on the Jewish people at the tip of a Roman spear. They were sellouts, money-hungry, grubby, grub, um, greedy people. So the first thing you should probably do is stop being a tax collector, but he doesn't say that. He says, instead of Levying taxes for your own benefit, instead do it fairly, respectfully, and without violence. So reorient your career to the kingdom of God. Now here's the double caveat. If you're saying, Matt, I live in this career and I do X, Y, and Z in this career, and there's no way that I could recalibrate that to the kingdom of God, that's where I would say you might want to rethink your career. But it's more nuanced, you see. He's saying, I want to, I want to infiltrate all of your life and all of this world. And guess what? It's scary. You should be terrified right now if you're really taking this scripture seriously. I am. We have a warning here about John the Baptist in the very beginning when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested. So we already have this warning that John will eventually lose his head, literally, as he is executed for being faithful to Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. But even, even beyond the great sacrifice of life, there's the sacrifice of your vocation, your relationships. It's terrifying. They went on not knowing what it would look like the next day. See, we read this story on the other side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and go, man, it would have been awesome to be James or John or any of those old early followers and get one of the 12 tickets to be in the inner circle. That would have been so amazing. But from their perspective, they're like, this young rabbi just asked me to give up everything to follow him. It's terrifying. Starting a church in North Park, San Diego is terrifying. Who do we think we are? You read any study on what's happening in the American church and it's going down. And there is a growing, young, dynamic church in the middle of North Park. But it's heavy. It's costly. 
Every day we say, Lord, what are you calling us to do and how do we do it? And you know what we do? We do it together. It's the buddy system. You can do things with a friend that you could never do by yourself. You could do things with ten friends you could never do with two. So as we come together as a community, we encourage each other in the organized ways that we love and live these things out and in the organic ways that you do it in your life, in your family, in your career. And so you know when you go to work tomorrow, you are not alone. You have the love of this God that we're talking about and the support of this community as you go forward. Which is really what we see in the call to healing. And I won't go through the entire thing, but just note, just note that Jesus is giving a sneak preview of what his kingdom looks like in its every dimension. In other words, he cares about spiritual renewal, which is why he forgives people's sins and connects them with God. And he cares about people's physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health, which is why he heals people's physical difficulties and meets them where they are. And again, it's his character to move toward them in their pain. Which then, if you thread that back to follow me, it means that to be a Christian is to be someone who also moves toward the pain points of this world, who works for their spiritual, physical, emotional renewal. And we do it together. So friends, may we hear him say together, the light has dawned. The king has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. May we receive. May we trust. May we walk together. This week and every week. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray now that you give us the grace to trust you. In the places of our lives that feel like sitting in darkness, I pray that you would make your light to shine. The places of our world that need your healing, we say, come Lord Jesus. I pray now that you give us ears to hear your voice calling us to transformation, to relationship, to healing. And as we do, that you'd send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.